This is episode 248 of the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Control and Compound Financial. They teach real estate investors how to multiply their wealth using infinite banking strategies. For a complimentary wealth coaching session or to learn more, visit www.controlandcompound.com forward slash Andrew Hines. Welcome back to the show. Today I have Neil Bawa on and he was an absolute pleasure to interview. Neil is a statistics guy. He's a multifamily investor. He does new construction development and he invests across the US and he is incredibly strategic about the cities that he picks. So as you could imagine, Neil is of course considering things like which states do I wanna own in, but then he's also considering which states do best in recessions by going back for and looking at historical data. He's finding specific areas within cities that are likely to do well based on crime trends. Uh, Everything with Neil seems to come down to a statistic, and it was a refreshing interview. Very, very different from a lot of what I've covered so far, and uh, something that I think a lot of people can learn something from. You're going to pick up some gold nuggets from this episode, so I'm really excited to share it with you. Uh, As always, I just want to ask, if you're enjoying the podcast, please make sure that you share it with somebody you think it could benefit. Also, hit the like, subscribe, notification, all that stuff. If you're an audio listener, please review it and uh, rate it five stars. These things all greatly help to get it out to more people. And I also want to remind you that if you're new, I do teach the fundamentals in the first 10 episodes of this podcast. So if you really want to just get into nuts and bolts, uh, you're brand new to real estate investing, that's a good place to start. And then of course, come right back up to uh, the more modern episodes. Or if you feel so inclined, go through all 240 some odd episodes because there's lots of gold nuggets in there from all the different guests. So with that said, let's go ahead and jump into episode 248 with Neil Bawa. Hello and welcome to the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. I have Neil Bawa on the show. And Neil, I think you're in California. Is that right? That's right. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. Awesome. Okay. So we're doing a, a long distance session here. And uh, thanks for doing this. Uh, if you don't mind, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I am a technologist, a data scientist. I've had a successful tech career and a successful tech exit. And I got into real estate, which uh, which is now kind of the day gig. Um, uh, by investing into real estate on my own for about 10 or 11 years, primarily for tax benefits um, and got addicted to real estate and decided I wanted to be the data science guy in real estate. The nickname that people use for me now is the mad scientist of multifamily, but I'm known well in the syndication industry, uh, about a thousand investors and the portfolio is about a billion dollars, 31 assets in 10 states. Uh, Lots of geeky, nerdy investors who like Uh, the use of data science in real estate. Cool. Well, we're going to take advantage of this then. (laughs) Um, Tell me, uh, tell me high level. Let's start with like markets that you look at and look for what you determine to be a good market, a bad market. We'll start with that and then we'll get into the deals and what you're looking for. Absolutely. So firstly, you know, good market, bad market really depends on what you're trying to do with it, right? So whether you're doing single family or multifamily, whether you're doing new construction or value add, um, I think the key is to have a, a full understanding of what it is that you're doing. So I'll, I'll, I'll start with new construction and then talk about existing buildings as well in terms of what's a good market. With new construction, a good market is one obviously with very low construction costs. There's this feeling that people have that construction costs in the U.S. don't vary much, and that's just an outrageously dumb idea. Construction costs on a per square foot for townhomes vary from $112 a square foot to 190. 
at $190 a square foot, no project in the United States works with today's cap rates and today's interest rates um, and LTCs or or loan to to uh, construct don't loan to value. Um, Whereas at $112, almost every project in a reasonable location with a re reasonable clientele would work. And so you have to really be obsessed with what makes the most amount of difference to your profits, to your net operating income. And that really varies a lot. When it's value add, the, 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 and this is actually a course that I teach that has 12 and a half thousand students right now. So anyone that wants to check it out, it's a, it's a very entertaining data science course. It's at www.udemy.com slash real focus, or you can just type in Udemy space Neil Bauer and you'll find your way to it. But, but this course, the reason it's very popular is because in 30 seconds, you can compare any one city in the United States to any one city, um, you know, uh, anywhere else. Uh, I believe it works in Canada, but I, I, I haven't gathered the data for that. So I'm, I'm going to say it, it probably works. Um, and there are five, five uh, metrics that we use to determine what cities in the U.S. to invest in. And those cities need to have a particular amount of population growth, job growth, income growth, home price growth, and crime reduction. Once again, so we're talking population growth, income growth, home price growth, job growth, and crime reductions. Now, in a podcast, you, I can't give you the exact metrics that you need for each of these for those cities to be the right cities to invest in, but that's why I gave you the URL of the course, udemy.com slash real focus. Um, and again, once again, very popular, about 12 and a half thousand people taking it right now because it allows you to compare any one city in the US, big or small, to any other city in the US, whether you've heard of them or not. Okay. So I, I need to dig into this a little bit. So we do need to go over some examples. So give me an example. I mean, you talked about new construction. I mean, 112 sounds high to me from a hard cost uh, standpoint. Are you are you including uh, development charges in that and, and all yes, your other yeah, there's, costs? There's some other stuff included in there. Yes. Like that's that's, right. that's like an all-in sort of cost at 100 and 112. Okay. Yeah. That, yes. that makes more sense. Okay. Um, yeah. Tell me like what cities have you done deals in lately? Sure. Um, so um, San Antonio is a sort of a perfect um, one for value-wide properties. Um, so what I look for is, let's start with population growth, right? The city that you are investing in should be as close to 1.5% a year in population growth as possible. So about 1.5% would be great for you know a, a big city like San Antonio, 1.5 million people. When you're looking at a smaller city like, let's say, St. George, Utah, or you're looking at, at Idaho Falls, then you want that number to be as close to 2%. The U.S. number, depending upon it's been messed up a little bit by COVID, tends to be between 0.4% and 0.7% growth. So essentially what you're looking for is a large city that has twice the population growth or a small city that has three times the population growth of a typical U.S. city. And that 2x to 3x makes a tremendous difference to your rent growth and also to your exit price, uh, three to five, 10 years, whatever, down the road. It makes an enormous difference. So it's it's a forward curve. When you have population yeah. growth like this, it is it doesn't it doesn't drive up demand this way. It drives up demand this way in an exponential curve. So if you're exiting five or six years later, you can get outrageous benefits for that. Yeah. Same thing for job growth, right? So uh, 1.5% job growth is, is fine, but look for two, look for two and a half, look for three. There are cities in the United States um, that have job growth at 3.5% and 4% and even 5%. And at 5%, mm -hmm. you cannot lose money in a market 
because there is just such an outrageous amount of rent growth, such a disgusting amount of rent growth, frequently 10, 11, 12% rent growth in a year that all of the mistakes that you've made get covered up. Um, so there, the, there's about 500 cities in the US that have their last 12 month job growth on a weird looking page. And again, I've got that page on my Udemy site. Um, basically go to the department of numbers, D-E-P-T of numbers.com slash employment slash metros. And you'll see a very long list. Look at the, the column that says last 12 month growth, sort it. And you'll mm -hmm. notice some amazing cities are going to come up that have job growth in the 5% range in the US. Job growth tends to be about one, one and a half percent range, one maybe 1% 1 these days. And so if you can get 5X the job growth, you are mm -hmm. juicing your returns in a ridiculous way. Okay, so we covered population growth is a big one. Uh, to recap, you're saying 1.5 population growth is good. The U.S. Mm -hmm. in general is between 1, uh, 0.4 and 0.7. Did I get that correct? correct? That's and right. then job growth, 1.5% is fine, but you like it if you can get all the way up to 5. Because... Five is very difficult, but uh, yeah. if you can get up to 3, you're going to do really well. At 4, you're going to do astonishingly well. 5 happens mm -hmm. uh, for a few cities in the U.S., smaller ones. Smaller cities. Yeah. Like, and that's what I wanted to ask you about is like the outliers, like what's too small. Um, so I usually ignore metros under a hundred thousand people. So I want the, the metro to be larger than a hundred thousand. So, uh, Idaho falls at 150,000 St. George at 200,000 are some metros that I'm interested in, you know, um, and then there's metros in the 400,000 range, like Reno, Nevada is at 400,000. So I look at those below 100,000, even 100,000 is considered to be fairly risky. So you want really, truly, truly, truly crazily outstanding numbers to go into these metros. And that's what I teach. I, I teach those numbers. So you're basically compensating for the risk of a small city by mm -hmm. going into cities that have just absolutely mind-blowing over-the-top growth, which sort of makes up for the risk. Um, it actually, more than makes up for the risk. So if it was if it was Idaho Falls, I think you said, at yes. 100,000 people, that you would consider exceptionally small. That's your minimum. Yeah. So Idaho Falls is actually 150,000 people. But yes, I yeah. wouldn't go much smaller than that because the, yeah. uh, the smaller you go, the, the less liquid your investment is. That's true. Yeah. It's going to be a little harder to sell it. So if you're going to go into Idaho Falls, then what are you going to expect to see there? Is that where you're going to expect to see the 5% job growth? It bounces back and forth. So obviously job growth numbers change even in the best markets in the U.S. So there are no markets in the U.S. that stay at 5% con continuously, mm -hmm. but Idaho Falls, St. George are typically markets that will bounce between 3 and 5%. Keep in on mind an that annual this, basis, what, like one on year an to annual the basis. next. One year That's to the right. next, it well, might be three, five, four, somewhere. Uh, there. Yeah, but what I, I mean, honestly, what I do is because I'm obsessed with data, I'm, I'm a data scientist and I look at data all the time. The the site that I just mentioned to you, right, DEPT of numbers.com slash employment slash metros, I actually look mm -hmm. at it every month. So okay. each month, the numbers change because it's the trailing 12 months. And right. I want to invest in cities that continuously bounce between three and 5% in job growth. And if they don't get up to 5%, I don't care. Now, when I'm looking to invest in larger cities, I'm looking at larger cities that will bounce between two and three and a half percent job growth. So a Los Angeles is never going to get up to 5% job growth. Small markets can because they very often just run out of people. Large markets mm -hmm. don't run out of people very quickly. People from the outer edges come in. And so big cities, two to three and a half, you know, maybe it's something of the size of Los Angeles or, or Seattle, yeah. small cities, three to five. Okay. And, um, the, the ones we've gone through, obviously population growth, job growth, those are mm -hmm. seemingly your top two that you're looking yes. at. 
Okay. Um, so I, I would say, so there are five metrics. Um, mm -hmm. One of them is more important than the others, and that's job growth. So sometimes people mm -hmm. ask me, hey, would I want to weight the metrics, meaning put yeah. more weightage on one and less on the other? The answer is four of them are, are basically about, um, uh, let's see, let me do the math on that. Um, 12%, well, 15% each. So it's four of them are 15, 15, 15, and 15 in weightage, if you want to use weightages. And the last one is 60, uh, 40%, and that's jobs. Jobs okay. are the, the the biggest single correlation with real estate profits out of those five, five metrics. Okay, so so could that not be a bad thing, though, if one market has had job growth like crazy for 10 years? Um, eventually, that will likely come down. It won't stay high forever, as you've pointed out. Uh, do you ever look at that as a negative or you've never seen a scenario where you'd look at that as a negative? It could happen. I think that the in an overwhelming number of cases, if all five metrics are moving in the right direction, you're going to do well. So obviously, mm -hmm. uh, internally, we use over 200 metrics. So we currently rank 323 metros in the United States, which have over 1,000 cities in them, and we use over 200 metrics. There are, you are correct, scenarios in which going to basically cities on fire can be a downside. Uh, but in most cases, it works. Internally, we have those other metrics that help us detect mm -hmm. those those late stage entries. Uh, but what I find is the vast majority of the money that investors have made has been in these cities, regardless of whether you you know come in late or early. A lot of these yeah, cities- Yeah, as long as it's still happening. A long time. Like when you're looking at the last 12 months, when you're looking at the last 24 months, you're seeing something similar, 3% and higher is obviously good. You said 1.5% is fine. Um, are you, are yeah, you more and remember often it's the doing... job growth, right? If you wait, if yeah. you off if you provide more weightage to the job yeah. growth, mm -hmm. then the city is on fire right now. It takes years for a yeah. city on fire to cool down. True. That makes sense. Um, let's go through the other metrics. So we've gone through the first two. Um, talk me through the next one. Sure. I'll give you some, some, you know, guidance on that, but keep, just be aware that I'll, the other three metrics are require more math. So they can kind of require an Excel spreadsheet. So I'll, I'll just basically give you a high level overview. Yeah, high level sounds can good. always yeah. pick, pick up, you know, a spreadsheet from that Udemy that link that I gave you. Bottom line is that the crime, you, you want to see a certain level of crime in a city that you're investing in. And you also want to see a reduction in crime. So there are, it's a, it's a hybrid metric. Um, there is a crime index that a website called city-data.com uses. So city-data.com, you go in there, you plug in the city, you know, Columbus, Ohio, you plug that in and you go mm -hmm. down and you'll notice that there's a big crime table and the bottom line is blue. So you can ignore all the other lines. You just look at the bottom line and you want the left number, which is the older number to be below 500. You want that number to be below 500, the left number. Now, the number on the right is kind of the coming closer to the present, right? So the number on the left might be 2005. The number on the right might be 2022. Mm -hmm. And you want to see a decline from 2005 to 2022. So not only do you need a number below 500, but you also need that number to decline over time. Both of those are necessary for the city to benefit from low crime. And all, by the way, there's a very high correlation between low crime and high uh, education which is why I don't have education as a separate statistic. If crime is dropping in a city, in a overwhelming number of cases, it's because education is improving. Very insightful. Okay, that's good to know. Um, so to recap, and we'll probably go through some examples of that. That's a good one to, sure. to know. Um, let's jump into the next one after crime. Sure. So the it's 
um, income growth. So what you want is you want a certain level of income growth um, in a certain time period. So I'm going to give this to you. It's a, it takes a little getting used to. So you want income of a metro to go up by 36% between 2000 and 2021. Between two, income is correlated over a longer term. Yeah. It's unlike, unlike jobs, which are correlated over the last 12 month time frame. So in that 21 year period, you want the income, the median household income of the mm -hmm. city to go grow by about 36%, yeah. right? And this is not an arbitrary number. I'm a data scientist. So you, you basically do run a lot of scenarios to figure out what's correlated to profit. Well, that's that 36% income growth is highly correlated to profit. Higher is better. Nothing wrong with 37 or 38. But once you start dropping below 30%, the city's yeah. income is growing slower than inflation. Therefore, yeah, it I was won't be say able that's to inflation. afford rent growth. Yeah, right? yeah. I just so, got, that's like 1.7% a year non-compounding. Correct. And that's basically tied to inflation. You want a city to at least be able to stay with inflation because you want rent growth to be at inflation or higher. Now, obviously, if the city yeah. has... 42% rent growth in between 2000 and 20, uh, 2021, the city is now growing faster than inflation. So your rents mm -hmm. can grow faster than inflation, right? Okay. So, and that number, by the way, is also available on city-data.com. So if you go to yeah. city-data.com, type, type in your city, just search for the words median household income, and yeah. you will see both of those numbers, the 2000 and the 2021 number next to each other. Just subtract the, or, or divide the two to see if it's a 36% growth. Nice. Okay. So we've gone through four of five. Let's get into that last one. Sure. Median house and condo value on the same website, city-data, where you just looked at the median household income, about two inches. If you scroll down about two inches is a metric called median house condo value. And there will be two numbers there. One number will be for 2000. One number will be for 2021. If you basically... Uh, divide those numbers. If the city median house and condo value has grown by 58%, then it's a city that you want to invest in. Once again, for this metric, higher is better, but not like astonishingly high. If the city is 200 or 300% higher over that time, that's a, a bubbly city. So you might want to back off. So a, a good number is between 58 and 120. Those numbers are, those are nice ranges. The city is growing just fine. Above 120 that it's possible that that city could be bubbly. Maybe it's not, but uh, mm -hmm. I would say be careful. Very interesting uh, information. Okay, so now I want to get into some scenarios. Um, first off, let's start with the state of Ohio. I know a lot of mm -hmm. people who like Ohio. Sure. They, they sure. like Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. um, Columbus would be another. Um, outskirts is, is common. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Tell me what you think of those areas. Do they, do they fit? Have you obviously you've analyzed them, sure. <laughs> but sure. uh, you know what do you think of those areas? Sure, actually uh, it, that's an easy question to answer because when I teach location magic, I've taught it to fifty thousand people. The city that I use for my examples is, uh, is Columbus, and I contrast it with Cincinnati, Cleveland, and Dayton, Ohio. So that whenever you watch my courses, you will see these four cities, right? Mm -hmm. So um, th here's the answer. Of the four main cities in uh, Ohio, one is a rock star. I call it the jewel of the Midwest, and it is Columbus. If you simply type in the following words into Google, you'll immediately see what I mean. Just type in the words population, space, Columbus, space, Ohio. That's it. Nothing else. Population, space, Columbus, space, Ohio. And Google will present you with a very intriguing chart. And the charts are super easy to see. Basically, what it shows is 
incredible and consistent population growth in Ohio is only given to one city, and that is Columbus. But if you look at it very closely, you'll also see other trends. You'll see that right below Columbus, there are two other lines. One says Cincinnati, the other one says Cleveland. Both lines are flat. But you notice that what happens with Cincinnati and Cleveland during recessions is completely different. Cincinnati doesn't lose any populations during recessions. People who like Cincinnati live in Cincinnati during recessions, during good times, during bad times. Basically, the population has a high affinity for the cities. That's why, as you notice the line over the last 30 years, you'll notice that it's flat, but it never dips during a recession. However, the Cleveland line is problematic. Firstly, Cleveland is losing population over the last 20, 30 years. What's worse is, if you track every recession, 2001, 2008, you notice that there's a big dip. You also notice that the line above it, which is Cleveland, has a big increase. Basically, every time there's a recession, people run from Cleveland to Columbus. The two lines, it's, it's just very stark, right? As soon as the recession begins, the population of Cleveland dips, the population of Columbus spikes, right? So that happens every time there's a recession, which means that the people in Cleveland don't have as much belief in their city as the people in Cincinnati do. So it, it's, it's a very interesting pattern. Dayton has just consistently lost population, so it's challenging. So I would say areas around Cincinnati that are affluent or areas around Columbus that are affluent are interesting areas to look at for real estate investing. Dayton is a very risky market. You can make a lot of money in Dayton because home prices are so cheap, but it is certainly at the high end of the risk spectrum. I'm not sure what you get in Cleveland because you don't get prices as cheap as Dayton, but you get no population growth either. And every time there's a recession, the city loses population, which means that you will lose a lot of renters. And we're on the, we're on the verge of that right now, uh, of yes. a recession, obviously, um, you know, that they're admitting to. Hi, friends. I just wanted to take a moment away from the episode to tell you about my brand new structured coaching program. This is the first time I've ever offered a structured coaching program where we'll have regular meetings in addition to an intro call uh, to go through what your goals are and help you get on a plan to achieve those goals within real estate. So if you followed me for some time and you feel that I would be a fit for you to help you achieve your goals in real estate based on my skill set, based on the topics we cover on this show, I encourage you to head over to my website, andrew-hines.com forward slash coaching and fill out the questionnaire so that we can schedule a call and figure out if it's a fit for us to work together. Let's face it, most people could benefit from a second set of eyes and ears going over their strategies, different deals that they're looking at, and helping to springboard ideas back and forth. This is a program that's exactly for that. So if you're looking to build confidence in what you're doing in real estate investing and get very clear on what it is you're trying to accomplish, this might just be the program for you. Take a moment, fill out that questionnaire, and let's schedule a chat. It's interesting you say that. I just had somebody on the show who's investing in Cleveland. <laughs> the numbers sound well, great. Again, I mean, the, the cash numbers flow sound really great. wonderful, right? The, so the, the cash flow is great. My, my question is, mm -hmm. if you have to sell in a recession, you're going to get hammered, right? So I yes. think what happens is, if you look at one investment in Cleveland or five, they sound great. If you look at 1,000, well, and you average them out, they're not going to look get great because people basically yeah. ignore the averaging. Yes. And uh, I mean, you, as you've pointed out, you kind of have to be compensated to take that greater risk. So that's why the cash flow is better. But I'm not sure if it's enough to justify what you're saying. And, you know, it's, it's great to have this analytical look at these cities to pick them. Um, so I did want to ask you, 
you're mentioning how these cities perform in recessions. Are you referring to property values or population or a mix of multiple things? In these cases, I was, uh, you know, the, in the example that I was giving, because I was actually telling people go and type in Columbus, you know, population, yeah, population. Columbus, Ohio, I was just simply talking about, you know, the population drop that occurs like clockwork in, in Cleveland in every time there's a recession, right? Okay, 2008, so, 2001, right? 2020 was, was not a real recession. Oh yeah, because it's a line, right? So you, you'll see yeah. a line that's flat and then you'll notice this yeah. zoop, a down. Yeah. And you can see that occurs immediately exactly where the recession is. So it's a very clear thing to see. Mm -hmm. um, now, property values, I haven't really seen any significant decline in property values in Cleveland in, in a long time. Um, they seem to do okay. They seem to do fine. Um, but I'm, I'm sure that rents will decrease when, when populations decreasing. So 100%. the impact may not be on property values, but I think the impact is likely to be on rents and cash flow, and you know makes your property liquid. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would assume they'd both correlate, although not at the same time. You know, it's gonna take, it's gonna take some time for, for property values to adjust if rents do. But no matter what, if people are leaving an area, rents are gonna have to go down. Demand, yep. demand for rent goes down, right? Um, Okay, so as far as places to get this data, like we talked about the five metrics you're looking for, but then you you also want to see how these places have performed in in times of recession. Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's sort of in addition to the five five metrics that you're looking for. It is so I I you know people students who've been following me right I call them students because it's a course on Udemy.com actually have tracked this data for hundreds of metrics metros over the last six or seven years that the course has been seven years that the course has been up on the Udemy website. And so we've got seven years of data. I don't know where to get that data for free. Um, there are lots and lots of paid data providers in the United States. There are literally dozens of different software that track these things that might cost between $50 a month and $5,000 a month, um, all going all the way up to CoStar and going, you know, all the way down to rent range at, you know, 10 bucks a month that, that provide, you know, uh, typically at least rental data, maybe not rent value data. Zillow, of course, is a terrific place because you can simply type the name of a city, Zillow home values. So you can type in Columbus, Ohio, Zillow home, value, home values and hit in the first link that comes up in Google. And it'll give you a very nice chart of the um, price history of that Metro over the last 10 years. So that's a, that's a free thing. It works for every city in the US. And by the way, the, yeah. the same same page also at least last year, did have the rent prices. So you can see the rent graph over the last 10 years, and you can also see the price graph. So that's super helpful for 10 years, but obviously to really track the recession impact, you want longer than that. You want to see... Yeah, I, I'm not that. sure where the, yeah. the, the, the data would come from. As, as I mentioned, there are tools, yeah. but they're now getting... Yeah. Those kinds of tools that are 20 years of data, 25 years of data are going to be in the you know, $2,000, $3,000 a month range. Interesting. And you said you have these, you have this data on your site or on your course? Um, well, I, I don't have the recession data on, on the course, apart mm -hmm. from, you know, what I just mentioned about, yeah. you know, the population data, but I do not have data for 2008 mm -hmm. or before. Uh, what I generally find is cities that have all the five metrics do much better during recessions. And so yeah. I have gone through the trouble of looking at some of my favorite cities to see what they do in recessions and find that data manually. And they do really well compared to the rest of the U.S. Uh, but there's some, you know, it, it's a little bit up and down. One of the cities that I like didn't do as well during the 2008 recession. Okay. Do you mind sharing that or? 
Which city is Provo, that? Provo, Utah. So one of Provo, my favorite Utah. cities in the U.S. Uh, city is is to yeah. is Provo, Utah, because it was a college town. It really got hammered in 2008. Okay. All right. So that's a nice segue. Um, do you like those type of towns? I, I mean, I would assume that you're you're just typical multifamily. Like, is there a class you're aiming for? Give me give me some of the you know some of the key attributes you're looking for and properties you go after. Um. So. You know, once I've looked at cities using these five metrics and a couple hundred, you know, that I look at myself, I'm then looking at a class C property. I like, occasionally I'll do a B property. And what I find though is that, um, you know, in the last four or five years, B properties became very expensive. They almost became A properties in terms of their cost. They were very expensive uh, to buy. Uh, That is no longer the case, by the way, you know, pricing uh, for multifamily has adjusted by 20%. And it for larger properties, it's now adjusted by 25%. I expect both of those numbers to rise over the next six months. So today, if I'm buying, I'm buying B properties in some of these, you know, superstar markets. I am staying away. Actually, no, I'm, I'm not going to use that word. I'm not buying in superstar markets because superstar markets, basically 15 or 20 markets around the U.S., have an astonishingly large amount of delivery, new construction delivery coming in, in the rest of 2023, all of 2024, and the first half of 2025. So markets that I typically recommend, I am now telling people to stay away from them. Austin, Phoenix, Nashville, Miami, you know, those kinds of markets, Dallas, these are really great markets. There's absolutely nothing wrong with them. They do really, really well on the metrics, but I'm just telling people, hey, if you want to buy in these markets and you should buy in these markets, they're amazing. Just buy in the first quarter of 2025 so you can avoid the um, the, the rent declines that are going to come in with a very, very large amount of units getting delivered into a market that really, because of a recession coming up, has negative household formation. So there's less households. And now you have these all these huge numbers of units coming in. So I'm looking at these, you know, second tier markets that are still fast growing, but do not have a large amount of delivery. So right now, if I had one word to share with people about how to buy value add properties in the United States, that word would be absorption. So we all use a software called CoStar, and that tells us what the absorption of a market is. All the superstar markets right now have either negative or extremely negative absorption. When you say negative absorption, like I think of absorption rate as how fast units get picked up. Units go for rent. How quickly do they rent out? So if only 10 out of 100 new units rent out in a year, that'd be 10% absorption rate. Would that be accurate? Or you tell me how you how you calculate. Absorption is is a is a number of unit counts. So it's, for example, you can say the entire city, if you're looking at a city instead of a submarket, the entire city of Austin might have a negative absorption rate of 6000 units. What that means is the the city's uh, income, job growth, population growth, and household formation was sufficient for it to uh, absorb 6,000 units, but it's delivering 10,000 units. Uh-huh. So it's delivering 10,000 units, it absorbs 6,000 units, so that gap is minus 4,000 units, and that mm-hmm. gap is going to lead to lower rent growth because the 10,000 units are still going to get delivered. So now those 10,000 units are fighting over 6,000 yeah. units of absorption, and the only way to do that is discounting the rents. Wow. Okay. Yes, that that makes a ton of sense. Uh, so those are some cities that I've definitely heard great things about, and obviously that's going to uh, affect the supply there, and uh, equilibrium price is going to drop. That makes sense. 
it could normalize within a few years after that, Neil. So would you suggest that, you know, for people with a longer time horizon, that might still be okay? You're saying buy before a certain date, get a renter in and then wait it out or get renters in because you're not just looking for one. Yeah, I mean, it really depends, right? If 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 you're doing single family, it's a little risky to go into a city that has huge mm-hmm. amounts of absorption, uh, you know, dislocation. You might not get a renter for months. And obviously, single family is riskier because you're either you've got either 0% occupancy oh, yeah. or 100% occupancy. But even with multifamily, I think it's risky. So I, I would say these are wonderful cities. You've invested in them in the past. You will invest in them again in the future. Just skip until yeah. January 1st, 2025. Otherwise, you're just buying grief and you're not really getting much value yeah. for it because today you can get a 20% discount in every market in the United States, with the exception of Miami, which is a bizarre market. Um, you can get a 20% discount everywhere. And in these markets, you might get a 22 or 23% discount. Mm-hmm. I mean, for that additional 2 or 3% discount, is it worth that risk? I don't think so. And when you say you can get a discount in those markets, are you saying a discount over what the highs were? Yes, March March for multifamily the uh, the peak of the market was March 2022. Mm-hmm. So when I say discounts, I'm basically say I'm always comparing it yeah. to the March 2022 price to the high. Yes. Okay, so I do want to ask you about the macroeconomic outlook since you're a statistics guy. But before we get to that, I want to talk about the micro adjustments you make per area because you talked about you know the decision to pick certain areas, but. And then we talked about sort of what you're looking forward to buy. Now, how do you pick where? Because Class C, you're obviously going to get into some higher crime areas with Class C. Um, obviously, it's not well, like Class D would be worse, but that um, is a consideration. You do need to watch out for uh, for crime in areas. So how do you go about making sure that where you're buying within that city is okay? So, uh, you know, there's lots of free 3D maps that overlay um metros right so google gives you an api and lots of people use those apis and use software like tableau there's free software kind of free software that costs you know 50 bucks a month or those sorts of things that give you crime overlays so avoiding crime is really not that difficult because Mm -hmm. crime data in the united states is real time it's very complete and there's just a million different ways like spotcrime.com right go to spotcrime.com type in an address and it'll tell you It'll give you an astonishing amount of information on the sort of crime that is going out in that area, both property crime and violent crime. And you can just contrast that with 10 other, you know, parts of the city and you'll get a very good, it gives you a nice map, you know, avoiding crime, you know, if you're not able to avoid crime, you're just lazy because it's, you know, it's, it's no more than 10 minutes of work for any address in the United States to to avoid crime using spot crime and a bunch of other places like neighborhoodscout.com. Um so it's not really all about, all about crime, though. It's about the path of progress. So one of the things that people don't understand is that the vast majority of profits in a city are tend, tend to be made in a quarter of the city, okay? So I'm going to give you examples. In Houston, the path of, uh, path of progress is northwest, the quadrant that is northwest that has spring um, Texas in it. That quadrant is where the money is in Houston, and, and you're always going to make greater money there than in the other three quadrants. Not saying the others are not profitable. It's just you're working harder and making less. Um, in Dallas, it is the northeast quadrant. So uh, the freeway that goes to Plano and McKinney, that's where the path of progress is flowing in Dallas. So And, and almost every city meets this rule. In San Antonio, it is the north 
northwest quadrant, which is where the South Texas Medical Center is. And they've got, you know, built very fancy stuff there, like the, the domain uh, with, um, or the Dominion, which is a very, 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 very large gated community. That's the path of progress. So you've got to understand where does the path of progress flow in whatever city you're in investing in? And that's very critical. One of the ways to do that, and there are some free ways to do this as well, is to look at Publix, Whole Foods, and Starbucks. Publix, Whole Foods, and Starbucks are considered to have the best path of progress teams. So you want to look at how many Publix, Starbucks, and Whole Foods have opened in that in that market that you're in in the over the last two or three years, and compare that to other markets around it. Hopefully, your market is better. Is there an easy way to look that stuff up? Um, like that, something that tracks those things? Because it's not easy. Like I go onto Google and I search uh, Publix. I just get a bunch of locations. I can't see when they opened. No, I think that you've got to go to Google and search for software that tracks, uh, you know, yeah. retail outlets and then basically buy a subscription. Yeah. Most of them are not expensive and you only have to buy them for a single month yeah. and then you can cancel them. There's uh, some people, uh, I mean, up here that we'll talk more about Home Depot or where you see a Home Depot or a Lowe's. Uh, it's it's too common, right? So so for me, it's too common. And the, the problem is that if you need, if 100% of the American population needs somebody, there's really no tracking. They're just trying to make sure they're not too far away or too close to another Home Depot. And that mm -hmm. is a different kind of tracking. I'm not sure if it's very beneficial. Starbucks doesn't try to get into every area in, in the US. And you might think, oh, no, no, Starbucks are everywhere. That's nonsense. Really, if you if you carefully look at where Starbucks puts his stuff in, they're, they're in about 25, 30% of a one mile radius of metros. And they're very, very careful about that. Yeah, it's super, uh, super interesting uh, approach to take. And um, can you talk a little bit about how you've sort of outperformed or, you know, what kind of results you've gotten that that you think are sort of unconventional or um, not typical? I've exited seven properties with hundreds and hundreds of investors. They made 47% annualized. Now, do I think that that was me? No, actually it wasn't. I think that my analytics boosted their returns by maybe 12 or 13%. And because in the time frame that I've been investing, a lot of people have done really, really, really well because the market was, you know, all, all ships rising. So I think I could have made maybe 32, 33% instead of 47% annualized in that time frame. It obviously guesses. But I've seen how in certain markets I did much better while my contemporaries struggled because they really weren't hyper-focused on uh, going into markets where everything was looking good, you know, all the time. And they were they were happy, you know, they'd get into a market like Houston, nice market. But, you know, Houston goes up and down. It's It's one of those cyclical, highly cyclical markets like Las Vegas. And so once these people were in, they would stay in. They would say, like, we've got connections here. We've got teams. We can perform better. All of that is true. But, you know, the, from, you know, peak Houston to bottom Houston is a huge difference in profit. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that all investors have that. I'm set up here. I don't want to move. I don't want to keep moving on and go to a different market. Um, well, then okay. they're not data scientists. No, they they're are, not. Yeah, it's, they're it's an emotional thing. They're not yeah. speculators, but but mm -hmm. they're making a conscious decision not to follow the cycle of a market. They're just saying, I like this market. I'm going to work within it. Well, when yeah. you do that, you're going to discount your profits. It's not a terrible idea to do. I'm sure most investors have made trillions that way. 
Um, but it's it's not the sort of technology driven approach that people mm -hmm. like me take. Okay. And how um, how are you adjusting now, knowing the macroeconomic outlook, interest rates are super high, uh, not likely to go down anytime soon, especially if you look back at history and what's happened with interest rates in the past, it's not likely to just drop like a rock. Uh, so knowing that, knowing that re recession is looming, um, how how are you adjusting or does your game plan stay exactly the same? Your metrics stay exactly the same? No, um, the game plan has to change things. Things that worked three years ago don't work today. Cap rates are different. Um, so there's good and there's bad. So let me tell you, I'm going to again break it up between new construction value add. So with new construction, I've actually frozen some of my projects. I've gone to investors and said, hey, I'd like to wait 18 months because my interest rates for new construction are up to 10%. Well, at 10%, I'm taking significant risk on the property. What if I get stuck in the middle of it and there's no recourse? You know, I'd like to just freeze. So a number of my projects have frozen. On the good side with new construction, right now is an absolutely gobsmackingly awesome time to do what is known as land squatting. Land squatting is not the process of buying land. Land squatting is the process of going to somebody, obviously a track record and money in the bank helps, but going to somebody and saying, hey, I would like to buy your piece of land. Maybe it's 10 acres and I want to build some townhomes here. And I'm going to take six months of investigation period. And during that time, I'll give you a very small deposit. So on a $2 million piece of land, I might give you $30,000 deposits, very small. Right, And I'll take six months to investigate. And then after that six months, this $30,000, it goes hard, meaning I can't get it back, except if I don't get government approvals and I have 12 months to get those government approvals. So now six plus 12 is 18 months. So at the end of 18 months, obviously I can slow up and speed up, slow down and speed up my government approvals it's completely within my control, right? And so now 18 months have gone by and either I buy the property or I walk away from $30,000. This is called land squatting. Now I have probably spent another $100,000 on preparing that property for shovel ready, you know, the permits and the architectural fees and blah, blah, blah. But if you have a a um, modular product like I do, which is basically a townhome widget, you know, and I sort of spread it around my, my, my architectural costs are extremely light. Bottom line is this, today I can squat on a piece of land for $30,000. So right now I'm squatting on 50 pieces of land, 50 different projects, and I've basically only put in a million and a half. 12 months ago, that would have cost me $20 million to do. And today it's a million and a half. So it's there's an incredible time to enjoy this process of land squatting. And I'm absolutely having an absolute blast with it. Um, but other than that, the projects that are ready, I'm, I've just frozen them for the next 12 to 18 months. I do not believe interest rates will stay high. And no, I do not believe, Andrew, that you're correct when you say interest rates, when they go up, they do not come down immediately. That is incorrect. The Federal Reserve has raised interest rates nine times since the Second World War. Only in one instance did they stay high 18 months after they reached their peak. Uh, in most cases, interest rates dropped significantly within nine months of the peak. We, I, I believe we are at peak, given the extraordinary uh, crisis that is going on that most people don't know about with treasuries, where basically they've risen to above five, this is the end of the cycle. So we reached our peak back in June, which means I think that we will see some interest rate reductions maybe a year from now. The Fed's not in a great hurry, and I, I wouldn't be in a hurry if I was a Fed. But you should see significantly lower rates in 2025 and much lower rates 
um, in 2026. Not the kind of rates that we saw in 2021. Those were crazy. They'll never come back. I hope they'll never come back because they cause bubbles. Uh, but the rates closer to 2019, you should see them in 2026. So um, it's it seems like a long time, but it's actually you know fairly short and we should see rate drops next year. Okay, so that's interesting. Um, I have like, and I based what I said on just knowing what's happened here in the uh, 80s. We had interest rates go up to about 18%. And it took until the year 2000 for them to sort of come down to like 6%, where they stayed until 2008, where then they sort of dropped down into the 3% range and, and hovered around there until, um, you know, the lockdown started. And then, of course, now they've shot up with uh, that's one way of looking at it yeah. right so um it might have taken 12 years from rate to get rates to get from 18 to six percent mm. but it, for for business to flow for for people to get back into the real estate market mm -hmm. it's not about where the rates are it's about how much they have declined and so between 1984 and 1985 rates declined by 500 600 basis points and that allowed the real estate business cycle to normalize. Mm -hmm. So people made lots of monies in real estate in the 80s, and they made lots of money in the 90s because the rates were much lower, right? right. Bottom line, though, is the Fed usually does not wait a very long time when they reach peak to start dropping rates. Because remember what the Fed's goal is, to put the economy into a recession and then to make that recession as shallow as possible. That is the Fed's okay. goal. They don't state it that way because that panics the markets. But in every every instance, except for one, not, uh, eight times out of nine since the World War II, that's exactly what they've done. Eight, seven of those recessions were shallow. One was deep, uh, mm -hmm. 2008, you know, different kind of environment. Uh, and then the ninth time they did avoid a recession, but they very, very, very barely avoided it because um, if, if growth had even been like one decimal point lower, it would have been counted as a recession. Okay. That's uh yeah that's super valuable information and in an interesting way to look at it. Um, so you're expecting some sort of decrease, not not necessarily to drop back to 2019 level or sorry 2020 levels, but somewhere. In yeah, there. yeah. I mean, I think you you need you know a COVID style crisis for rates you know for the Fed funds rate to drop back down to zero, but the uh you know a a inflation rate of two percent, which is what the Fed's after, usually correlates with a Fed funds rate of two and a quarter. We are currently at five and a half. So yeah. that difference between those two is the unusual nature of inflation. There is absolutely no mm -hmm. reason, no rhyme or reasons that the Fed would want the rate to be higher than two and a quarter mm -hmm. if they if they felt that inflation was coming down. And the only way to really kill, kill inflation, once again, the Fed doesn't say it, is to cause a recession. Recessions are negative demand. Negative demand and positive inflation don't happen at the same time. Okay. Yeah, that makes uh, that makes lots of sense. So... Uh, Neil, closing thoughts, like where do you see opportunity right now, knowing where the market is, um, where where are your spidey senses taking you? And uh, give me the high level. One is built to rent. I think that there are 18 million American families that make between 60 and $85,000 that simply will never be able to buy a home. And those people do not want to live in apartments. So BTR, which is basically, for the most part these days, BTR means townhomes, rental townhomes, I think is an incredible growth market. I think we're going to end up with three or four million of these townhomes in the United States over the next 10 or 15 years. So great market to get started. It's very early. that We, have, we, we haven't even hit 100,000 BTR units in the United States yet. 
And I think we're going to end up with three or four or five million because that is the replacement single family dream for people that want to live in a single family, but never have a chance of qualifying for a loan based on their current income. Um, and we're talking about very large numbers, could be 6 million families, 18 million. I've, I've seen both numbers. Either way, we, we need a lot of those units. And second, if you're in multifamily, why aren't you buying now? At the same net operating income, prices are down 20% from peak. They will be down 25% in the next three or four months. That's about as big of a discount that you will as you will ever get on multifamily. This is a terrific time to buy. I'm one of those guys that was saying in early 2022, don't buy, don't buy. Doesn't make sense to buy. I didn't buy. So now I'm at the point where I'm like, okay, well, I'm validated. I waited and it's time for me to be greedy. So my mindset right now is I'm filled with greed. <laughs> okay, so you're you're uh, you're bullish on the market right now. You're going to go ahead and take advantage of these opportunities. Are there any specific cities that uh, that just seem poised right now? Um, not really. I mean, uh, thanks to high interest rates and the fact that you know some of these uh, superstar markets have a lot of inventory coming in, discounts are available pretty readily. You can get a discount mm -hmm. of twenty from peak easily. If you push, you can get a discount of 25. If you really want to wait, wait for another maybe three to six months, and you might even get 30% from peak. So there's just a lot of availability. Right now, there's not a lot of inventory, but with this latest increase in treasuries that happened here in October 2023, a lot of people that have been waiting for some miracle to happen will capitulate and bring their properties to market. So I, I suspect that we will have a flood of these properties early next year. So great time uh, to be on the lookout and uh, analyzing properties to, to hopefully make a move. Yep. Awesome. Okay, Neil, where do people find you? What uh, what do you want to share with them? Um, I'm the only Neil Bawa on the World Wide Web. So it's type in Neil space Bawa. You'll see hundreds of podcasts on, you know, dozens of webinars that we conduct. Our course, uh, type in Udemy, U-D-E-M-Y space Neil Bawa. Or if you want all of our content, we publish content that 25,000 people consume. Uh, all you have to go, do is go to multifamily followed by the letter u.com. That's multifamilyu.com. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, I know that my uh, listeners and viewers got uh, a real treat with this one. So I really appreciate it and I uh, hope we can connect again in the future. Sounds good. Thanks, Andrew. Okay, thanks, Neil. Hey, friends, I'm sure you've been noticing that cash flow is getting a bit tougher with these higher interest rates. This is why I've noticed a lot of investors shifting over to our more passive approach and also to optimize their overall returns. Tune into my passive real estate investing webinar that I'm hosting on November 8th, 2023 at 7 p.m., where I'll have special guests, Carmen Campanero and Nick Wright, talking about what private equity is, how you can invest in it, what private REITs are, and how you can even have your TFSAs and RSPs invested in real estate where it would otherwise not be possible. Space is limited to this webinar, so please take a moment now and register your attendance at www.andrew-hines.com forward slash webinar or go ahead and use the link in the show notes of this episode. I'll look forward to seeing you there. Infinite banking in under 60 seconds. We've all got to save our money somewhere, and we think that a high cash value life insurance policy is the perfect place to save it. Why? We're going to save our money inside this policy, and it's going to grow tax-free. Down the road, we're going to get hit with an emergency or an opportunity, maybe a chance to buy a business, real estate property, an income-producing asset, and instead of withdrawing from our savings account, we're going to leverage that asset. We're going to borrow the insurance company's money, and we're going to invest in that opportunity. Our money is still inside of that policy, compounding, uninterrupted, tax-free, and our money's outside in this investment opportunity. We're going to rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, 
all while providing a death benefit for our families. Down the road, we're going to retire. Now we retire with a high cash value life insurance policy with a lot of cash. We're going to start taking those policy loans again, but this time we're never going to pay them back. When I say never, I mean we're going to pay them back with the death benefit when we die, and our families are going to get left with the rest completely tax-free. 